Lower middle market businesses are a vastly underappreciated and undervalued space with tremendous potential for returns. Unfortunately, finding and acquiring a company can be tiring and filled with inefficiencies, wasted time, and ultimately dead ends. But our sponsor, PrivSource, grew out of the need to navigate through the chaotic waters of the lower middle market and help buyers source high-quality acquisition opportunities. PrivSource provides a fully vetted M&A deal platform with hundreds of live engagements thus far. Unlike other M&A platforms, PrivSource fully vets all members and deals to ensure they meet high-quality standards. They also never charge a referral or success fee on any deal that is sourced through the platform. The platform sources deals from a variety of industries and verticals, with coverage in the U.S. and Canadian markets. Deals range in size from $5 to $15 million in revenue and $1 to $5 million in EBITDA. If you're seeking to acquire and operate a lower middle market business and want to see more deals and pay less fees, check out PrivSource. As a listener of the podcast, you can save 50% off your first month by going to PrivSource.com circle. That's PrivSource.com circle. My guest today is Andrew Wilkinson, co-founder of Tiny, a holding company for wonderful internet businesses. Prior to starting Tiny, he started a highly successful website and app production company called Metalab, which he used to fuel his acquisitions in the internet business space. Andrew's work at Tiny has been described as the Berkshire Hathaway of the internet, and as an avid student of Charlie Munger, he's one of the clearest, most rational thinkers in the investment space today. Andrew, welcome to the Circle of Confidence podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Benton. I'm a, a huge fan of your podcast and newsletter, so it's great to be here. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, most folks will probably be familiar with your backstory, but would just love for you to kind of give a brief two to three minute overview, um, and then we can sort of dive in a little bit deeper after that. How's that sound? Sure. Um, I mean, I have a very odd path to um, becoming an investor and even an entrepreneur. I was never interested in business and I'm certainly not one of those kids who was obsessed with the stock market and collecting playing cards or anything like that. I um, grew up uh, just being really interested in technology, kind of obsessed with computers. Um, and honestly, I was just bored as a, as a kid. And so I ended up spending a lot of time uh, learning how to build websites and tinkering. And uh, when I was about 15, I realized that if I started a uh, tech news site, I could get companies to send me review units of their products for free. And so I started getting thousands of dollars of uh, electronics equipment sent to me every week, which was like nerd Christmas. It was absolutely incredible. Um, and uh, I ended up uh, writing reviews of all these products. And before I knew it, I had a very successful website um, posting news and reviews and covering, you know, Macworld and all this sort of stuff. Um, so I did that all through high school. And I always like to say that uh, unknowingly, I got my MBA in high school because it led to me hiring writers and uh, doing all sorts of uh, you know, odd things for teenagers like negotiating advertising deals and uh, traveling to conferences to, you know, be a member of the press and stuff. Um, and so I did that all through high school and I, I almost failed, uh, you know, many of my classes in high school because I was so busy running this website. 
Um, and so I decided I wasn't going to go to university. And uh, I told my father that. And he just flipped the F out. He pulled over the car, told me I was going to be working at a gas station. You know, I had to go to school. And, you know, it made a lot of sense what he was saying because the internet bubble had just burst and uh, things were not great in the economy. And so um, he ended up talking me into going to journalism school. He said, you know, look at what you're doing. Very similar to journalism. Uh, you know, just uh, give, this a, give this a shot. And so um, that's what I did. I went to journalism school and uh, I, um, you know, very quickly realized that uh, it was not for me. Um, you know, on day one of uh, journalism school, the professor basically said, uh, this is a dying industry and, you know, I'm only teaching here because I got laid off from the local paper. And, uh, you know, if you want to make money, this is not the place to be. And to me, um, money was always actually important. Uh, my, my family never had enough money and it was always a sense of tension. And so, um, you know, I felt that I wanted to do something where I could make a good living and be comfortable. And I'd also been running this website and just had so much fun. I looked at that as kind of the fun version of journalism. And the boring version of journalism was writing about, you know, uh, local hard news and stuff. And so I ended up giving up, dropping out after about three months and uh, moving home, trying to figure out what to do. And I decided that I would uh, move to Silicon Valley, that I wanted to go be part of the exciting movement of what was happening in tech. But I was dead broke. You know, I'd spent all my money on school and moving. And uh, so I started uh, just building websites for people, um, freelance. And I had one great insight, which was that nobody wants to hire a 19-year-old uh, dork in his parents' basement. And so I came up with the name Metalab. I designed a very slick looking website that made me look like a big agency. And I started calling companies in Silicon Valley uh, and asking if they needed help with their uh, websites, web apps, that sort of thing. And before I knew it, I had a whole handful of um, very lucrative startup contracts and I was doing 40, 50, $60,000 a month. Um, and before I you know, knew it, I, I just didn't need to go and get a job in Silicon Valley suddenly I was in business for myself. Um, and I never set out to, you know, build and build a big group of companies or, you know, make a bunch of money or do any of this stuff that we've done over the last 15 years. Um, but I just kept delegating more and more stuff and I kept having more and more business ideas. And, uh, before I knew it, you know, I woke up 15 years later and we had started, uh, five successful companies and, uh, then moved into acquiring, uh, internet businesses from founders like me. And today we own uh, over 30 of them. So it, it's been a, a really wild ride. Um, and I never would have predicted that I would have ended up here. It was not something that uh, I was particularly interested in. To me, investing was uh, stock charts in the newspaper and uh, something my dad brought home in a briefcase looking tired. I, I had wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah. Wow. What, and that's an amazing story. I had the uh, pleasure to interview Monish Pabrai and he had a similar sort of track where he, um, he, he, he ran an IT uh, consulting company and very similar to sort of your business model of providing and uh, sort of the picks and shovels to uh, all the gold miners in Silicon Valley and did really well. And then I think he ended up selling it. And then that's kind of how he seeded uh, Pabrai funds. And so 
it seems like just kind of I've seen this pattern of like the picks and you know selling picks and shovels to a nascent uh, sort of growing industry and then sort of taking that and sort of rolling it forward. Was that evident to you at the time or were you just kind of like, well, you know, this is this makes sense. And so I'll just kind of keep doing it until I kind of move on to the next thing. Like, what was your thought process at the time? If you can take us back to that moment. There was I mean, there is. There was really no grand strategy at all. It was, I know how to design websites. I'm okay with Photoshop. I think I can charge people money and have them not hate me at the end of it. Um, and my, my goal, to be honest, was I didn't like having a job and I didn't like working for someone else. So my goal was that I wanted to be able to wake up uh, whenever I wanted, that I wanted to be able to sleep in and work on things I found interesting and make enough money to uh, eat out at a restaurant and go out drinking when I wanted. That, that was, those are my ambitions. I, I, I wasn't thinking about um, building anything at scale. Um, and it actually took me probably 10 years to realize I had a good business. Um, you know, when you're in a business, uh, whatever it is, it's hard to run, right? It's a Brent Bashore has a great quote. He says, running a business is like waking up and being in a knife fight every single day. You're just desperate to stay alive. And what's interesting is I think every entrepreneur feels the knife fight, but uh, depending on how challenging the business you have is, uh, it can be much more severe and life-threatening. And so, uh, you know, I was heads down building the business, went through all sorts of uh, change and turnover and new business models and failed experiments. And about 10 years in, I started looking at other people's P&Ls when I started investing and looking at buying other businesses. And I, I went, oh my God, we actually have a really phenomenal business, um, you know, more profitable than is to be expected from that sort of business. And we didn't have to do marketing and sales and some of the things that other agencies had to do. Um, so I didn't realize how lucky I was when I was in it. And then obviously reading Buffett and learning about moats and stuff, uh, I realized that we had a brand moat and we'd built a great reputation. Um, but it, t- it took me a long time and there was no, I had, there was no strategy. I, I bumbled into it. I got really lucky. <clears throat> well, that, that sort of leads into my next, uh, my next question, which is sort of, when did you discover, you know, the Buffett Munger partnership and their sort of stress about, uh, about delegating and elevating, if you will, about, you know, uh, forming their holding company and sort of hiring the right people to put in the right places. Like what, what was that transition like? And then, then let's get to some, some competitive advantages and, and how that applies in the internet space. Well, I think entrepreneurship is really just delegation. So, um, I'm, I, I think of myself as a somewhat lazy person, um, and, and so as soon as I start doing something I don't enjoy, I, I want someone else to do it. Um, and it turns out that's a really good quality for an entrepreneur. Uh, and I, it's kind of what makes an entrepreneur. And so very quickly, uh, when I started my business, I started delegating. And if you follow that progression over the course of decades, as you delegate more and more and more, the ultimate delegation is actually just investing um, and hiring others to run your businesses. And what I realized was that I was not, I was a great early stage CEO, but I was not a good uh, follow through CEO. I was not good at scaling a business from 5 million to 50 million. I didn't enjoy that process. And so I realized through reading about Buffett and Munger um, that something I'd never considered before was possible, which was, you know, I don't need to run these businesses myself. I could just have uh, exceptional CEOs who specialize and have done it before. 
uh, run each of them. And so when I delegated that, uh, life just became so much better because I could focus on the things that I liked and they could focus on the things that they liked doing. And, you know, I always joke about, um, you know, if there's a, a race and you don't enjoy running, you can incentivize a marathon runner who loves it and lives for it to go and run the race for you. They're happy and you're happy. Um, and so that's, that's what I did. I, I found a whole bunch of incredible uh, CEOs to run all of our businesses. And as soon as I did that, they started growing much faster and uh, things got a lot more enjoyable for me and my business partner, Chris. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think understanding who you are, whether you're the operator to go from one to N, or if you're sort of the person that likes to go maybe zero to one and sort of delegate thereafter, uh, it's probably an important quality to understand. Um, you know, as you've looked at, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, probably tens of thousands of businesses in the internet business space, what are some of your favorite business models and maybe sources of competitive advantage in the space? I, I'm admittedly, I, I don't know the internet space and sort of some of these small, uh, smaller, like non VC type businesses. I mean, that's kind of what really captures the 1%, uh, you know, most of the attention, uh, but there's a ton of other businesses that just don't get a ton of attention because they're not, you know, $100 million SoftBank checks, right? So maybe talk about some of the competitive advantages and the, the business models that you've seen that you like the most in the space. Well, I'd say the most valuable business model, whether it's on the internet or not, is usually a network effect. So you'd see something like the Visa network, you know, if if Visa is accepted at every store in the world and you go out and you have a billion dollars and you create the Benton uh, credit card, but it's only accepted at your local supermarket because that's the only store you've been able to get into. It has no value and no one wants it. And so disrupting a business like Visa is next to impossible. Um, so what we look for is businesses like that that have some sort of uh, impenetrable or difficult to penetrate moat. And the problem with those businesses is they're so special that you only find them once every five, 10, 20 years sometimes. So, um, you know, I would say we really only own one business with that, um, that sort of moat, which is Dribble, which is the largest social network for designers. Um, and what's really interesting about Dribble is that Dribble, um, Dribble is not reliant on any outside party. So, so many businesses these days are reliant on getting traffic from Google or Facebook, uh, paid acquisition, or they have somebody in the mix who can um, really change things for them. And Dribble actually gets a lot of its traffic via designers waking up in the morning and just typing in dribble.com directly. And so it has a direct relationship with its customer um, and it's much more difficult to disrupt. And because the community is so big, um, it's the best place to go to post. So as long as we don't make the uh, community upset and you know do something really, really stupid, um, people want to go where other designers are and the best designers are on Dribble. And so uh, in that way, it has a network effect. Um, you know, the other interesting thing about Dribble is that uh, I always like to say uh, the best businesses are like airports. Uh, everyone shows up and they have to show up and there's not really anywhere else to go. So, you know, when you fly out of most cities, there's really one airport you can go to and you got to sit in the, the waiting area. And while you're sitting in the waiting area, there's a whole bunch of stalls around. And when you own the airport, you can decide what businesses you want to put in what stalls and you can set the business model. And so 
um, you know, when you have a, uh, an airport business like that with this huge community of people who are there every single day, you can sell them all sorts of different things that they want. They might want a massage. They might want to eat a nice meal, might want to buy a souvenir for their kid. Um, and it's just figuring out how do you serve them in a way that is aligned with their interests and goals. Um, so it's a very, very powerful business. Um, you know, we also like to buy businesses that are kind of a barnacle on a whale. Um, so the idea of kind of finding a, a rapidly growing space uh, or niche that uh, we have some sort of lock-in in. Um, you know, our business, Pixel Union, and some of the businesses we own through our public holding company, WeCommerce, uh, reflect that. You know, we have a very strong position in the Shopify ecosystem for apps and themes. Um, and that took us 10 years to build. And our thesis is that as e-commerce grows, Shopify grows. And as Shopify grows, our apps and themes should grow as long as we continue to do a good job. Um, so, you know, we love stuff like that. Uh, we also own the largest remote job board, uh, which honestly we stumbled into. We got a great deal for, um, but we uh, had a bet that we thought remote work would continue to grow and it has, and we work remotely has continued to be the top job board. Um, you know, there's just so many different forms of competitive advantage on the internet, but what's really interesting is that most of them are sandcastles. So a business that looks incredible in year one can be decimated in year five. And so at the end of the day, we have to really follow. I mean, you mentioned Monish Pabrai. I love his way of thinking about investing. Uh, you know, lose, I lose a little, win, I win big. That is really how we approach everything. So we look at our businesses when we're acquiring a company, we go, you know, what are the odds that this is going to be out of business in five years? And if it was, how much of our cash would we be able to get back within that time? And we're generally trying to make a bet where it's relatively asymmetric, where if the business gets um, disrupted in some way, we can still get most of our investment back. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. I did want to ask about the Shopify ecosystem and sort of the business models that that you all are targeting with WeCommerce. Uh, congrats on the way by by a really successful IPO. It's amazing, and oh, thank uh, you. I'm I'm sure that's a, an incredible feeling to to have a company get floated uh, publicly. So, you know, what are you guys targeting there, and what's attractive about that ecosystem? I think it's what I said before. I mean. Um, it's interesting. We, uh, we met Toby and Harley, the CEO and, uh, president of Shopify, um, probably in about 2010 at a conference. And at the time there were about 20 people, they hadn't raised their series a yet. And, uh, we just really liked them. We admired Shopify and what they had built. Um, but we had no idea how big it was going to be. And we kind of did them a favor. They said, look, we want you guys to design some themes for us and be one of our first partners. And we thought, oh, well, we're kind of busy running this agency, but we'll start this business off the side of our desks and see where it goes. Um, and before we knew it, we we're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month and part of this huge ecosystem. Um, so, you know, for us, uh, it's actually, it's a crazy story. So we actually, um, in 2013, Chris and I got kind of overwhelmed running all the businesses. This is at the time before we'd hired CEOs and we decided to sell Pixel Union. And so we ended up selling an 80% stake of it. And then after we, after we um, sold the stake, we had all this money in the bank and we realized we needed to learn uh, investing. You know, we started reading about Buffett 
and uh, value investing. And as we read about moats, we realized we'd sold the business with a great moat. And so um, we eventually approached the folks that had bought the business off us and we ended up cutting a deal to buy it back, which we did in 2019. Um, and then we ended up taking it public in December. Um, but I mean, yeah, the bet is really that Shopify is the best positioned uh, solution for independent retail uh, online. And that as that continues to grow, uh, Shopify will benefit massively and that we'll be the barnacle on the whale and be along for the ride. And it's also a bet on our ability to deploy capital. Um, you know, we're really a holding company and we're just out there trying to be the best buyer for founders of Shopify businesses. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. So just given your, your past, you know, the past decade and a half of investing in the internet space, you know, you mentioned the fact that some of these businesses can be sandcastles, um, but but you may not realize it. Have you ever bought a sandcastle? And also, are there any other, you know, tough lessons that you've learned along the way that sort of stick out in your mind? Well, I mean, the biggest lesson for us is that on the internet, because of the amount of capital that flows into it through venture, if you're in a space that's hot, you will have endless competition. And um, you know you can have the best product. I, the example I, I always give is you could travel to Italy, you could study under artisanal pizza makers, you could master your craft and truly have the best pizza in town. Uh, you could spend the money and open a beautiful restaurant um, and you could get incredible five-star reviews uh, for a year and you could have a great pizzeria and then all of a sudden venture capital comes in and they go, hey, we think pizza is a very exciting market. Uh, we're going to fund all, uh, all these other entrepreneurs and those entrepreneurs go and they open uh, pizzerias all up and down the street and because they have venture funding they can afford to lose money for five or ten years and so mm -hmm. they start handing out their pizza slices for free Maybe their pizza isn't as good as yours initially, but as they grow and as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, they're actually able to attract away your expert pizza makers and offer them more money. And before you know it, they have better pizza than you do and they're selling it cheaper. And so the hard part is evaluating, um, you know, finding a market where either you have a very, very solid moat, uh, you know, for example, with Dribbble, I really believe that, you know, give Microsoft a billion dollar budget they're not going to be able to go and build another dribble, right? I think it's lightning in a bottle and it's a very unique community. And again, as long as we don't do something to upset the community, I think we're going to have a very wonderful business for decades. Um, but if you are building a business where your moat is an exceptional product, often that just is not enough. Um, and I learned this lesson um, you know, building SaaS software where I would build the most beautiful, best design product. Uh, I'd be the first to, you know, start that um, that sort of software. And then before I knew it, there was venture, uh, venture back startups copying me and they just had way more money to spend on customer acquisition. And so, you know, you just don't want to get into a war of attrition where you can't compete. It, it makes total sense. You, you, you want to avoid ponds where everybody's fishing. Um, yeah. They just aren't. aren't I, I was going to say the, the Munger quote, fish where the fish are, is, <laughs> right. is what I always say because, you know, you can get a really nice, big, healthy fish in a small pond and maybe it won't be as big as the 
potential fish in the big pond, but you're only competing with a few sleepy fishermen. You do not want to be in the overfished pond doing crypto and AI and, you know, disruptive innovation. That's not what we want to do. And we're very comfortable being in a small total addressable market. Um, you know, as long as we can grow at say 15 to 30% a year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a perfect segue. It's just speaking about venture capital into the operations questions I wanted to ask about, but how many of your, how many of the companies in Tiny's portfolio are XVC companies? And what was that, uh, what was that process, that workout process like? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, let's see. So we have a few in our portfolio that are kind of venture orphans. And what's interesting with venture is that ultimately when a venture investor goes out and invests their fund, they usually invest it in 20 or 30 companies. Um, and those are really roulette chips. Those are all or nothing. And so either they build a billion dollar business or it's essentially a zero to them. And 90 plus percent of the time, the business is a zero. And so um, if you build a good business, but not an incredible business, or if they invest at too high a valuation and they can't provide a 10X, the venture investors kind of cut and run. And so what we've had a lot of success with is finding businesses where they've failed to build a billion dollar business, but they might've built a really great five or $10 million business. Um, and the venture investors don't value it. And so we can go to them and say, look, We'd be happy to take this off your hands and, you know, your startup can pivot or in some cases, um, you know, we can just structure a deal that gives the venture investors some upside in the future uh, if we turn it around and do well. Um, I mean, the, the businesses we've acquired are, uh, that are venture backed are uh, Meteor. They'd raised $50 million from Andreessen uh, previously before that. They built a wonderful business, but it just wasn't big enough to, you know, provide a you know, 800 million billion dollar return that Andreessen needed for that to be useful to right. them. Um, and so we were able to get it for a very fair price and uh, plug in a great team. And, you know, it's kind of like rehab, right? It's like getting them off the venture juice and taking them sustainable. Um, you know, another one is Girlboss, uh, you know, incredible brand, huge social following. Um, but, you know, they'd also raised uh, you know, raised quite a bit of money and gone for hyper growth. And we, all we've done there is really just kind of, uh, kind of simplified the ambitions of, you know, let's not try and be every, everything. Let's just be a few solid things and we'll build over time. And so often, you know, people think of it as, um, you know, you're not going to build a big business. It's not that it's more that we're just going to do it very sustainably. Yeah. Is, do you think there's a movement for venture startups or, or, uh, early companies to run more profitably and to, to try and bootstrap uh, from a founder perspective? Or is it just like, you know, just from where you sit, like, you know, the money's available. So what the heck, I'm going to get 100 million from SoftBank because who cares? I mean, what, you know, what what's the pulse on the ground right now, if you will? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, I think of venture is a uh, credit card, right? It's got 15% 20% interest and it stacks up really quick. And, you know, technically there's no actual interest on the, um, on the, on the money, but what it is, is, you know, you're essentially saying to the venture investor, when you take their money, I will 10 X this in five or 10 years. Right. And so if you don't do that, you fail and that's okay. But the venture investor is going to be incentivized to hold a gun to your head and say, 
you know, what are you doing? Shoot for the moon, become the next Elon Musk. And maybe your business isn't that kind of business. Maybe it shouldn't naturally scale that large, or maybe you just can't profitably get there. And so I am not opposed to venture. People always mistake me as like anti-venture. I'm not at all anti-venture. I just think it depends on what your goals are. And if you want to build a billion dollar business in a competitive space, yeah, you're going to need to go raise venture. But if your ambitions are to, uh, you know, live a good life and grow it, you know, 20 to 40% a year and, uh, you know, cash flow your business or, uh, or you simply just don't need it. If you can just grow really, really fast by compounding your capital within your own business, um, then all the power to you. And I think that's logical. Um, I, I just hate, I would never buy a house where it had a 95% chance of being a zero and a 5% chance of, you know, a 10x. I would never buy that house, right? You'd never make that investment. So for, but it, so I find it odd that, you know, so many entrepreneurs go and do that with their businesses, which is their primary asset, you know, far more valuable than their their house. Certainly, certainly. And it's um, it seems like, you know, again, the big raises always get the, the media attention and, and it's sort of the siren call, but... Uh, you never see the media covering, you know, except for the WeWorks of the world. <laughs> um, now, the other companies that aren't uh, VC-backed companies, you know, w- what's their story? Are, are they all over the map? Are they bootstrapped? Do they have similar sort of threads that run through uh, how you guys bought them? Well, Tiny was really born out of our own pain and frustration. So yeah. we many times over the years would have been willing to sell businesses. But as we spoke to private equity firms, they always just made it so difficult and they dragged it out and they always, you know, renegotiated. They'd always put a gun to our head at the last minute and say, oh, actually, we're going to change all the terms and we want you to do a big earn out or, you know, or we're going to defer a bunch of the payment. And as I read about Buffett, I just went, wow, you know, here, here's a guy doing deals that are a hundred times bigger than most private equity firms. And he's getting them done in two weeks. And, you know, there's no negotiation. It's just very straightforward. Here's, here's what, here's my offer, take it or leave it. Um, And, and then ultimately working with founders and just being very founder friendly and being true to the DNA of the business. The other thing about all these private equity firms is they're run by MBAs um, or investment bankers who have never run a business. So A, they don't have any empathy for your problems. They don't understand your problems. Um, They really look at your business like a spreadsheet. And so for us, you know, we know a little bit about finance, but we mostly know about operating businesses. And we can come in and say, look, we completely understand how to operate your business. We understand your business is unique. We understand you have a unique culture. Uh, You work with creative people. And we know what pisses those people off. So let's not mess this up and let's leave your business to be the way you intend it to be. And I want you to continue to be an owner. Often, you know, they keep 20, 30%. Um, and we want to operate your business for decades. We're not looking to go and flip it like a private equity firm has to. Um, and so that has been a very successful message and it really resonates with founders that, um, you know, we're one of them. It's by founders for founders. I want to get into the structure of Tiny and sort of the roles of the holding, com- holding company, but then also of the, the portfolio companies. So it seems like you guys have taken the playbook of Berkshire Hathaway and, and literally copied it, uh, as far as I can tell, just from some of your other interviews. But um, talk about the roles that are sort of only at the holding company level and then sort of what you delegate to the operating uh, companies and, and how that sort of relationship is and how it's set up. Well, I mean, it's been a 
a series of painful lessons for us where originally we had Metalab, the agency, and it was very attractive to say, well, we've got this great design development team. Why don't we, when they have spare time, build our own software? And so we started building that software. And then what would happen is, uh, you know, a client would get angry or a big project would come up or whatever, and we'd hit pause and we'd run away from that software project and it would get slowed down so that we could go do the client work or we'd miss great client work because we we're too busy trying to build our own software. And so we saw very quickly firsthand that that kind of synergy just didn't work and that ultimately teams function best when they have one P&L, one team, they're not reliant on anyone else. Um, and so when we structured Tiny, we learned a lot from Berkshire, but we also just learned from our own experience that um, the more synergy you have, the more excuses you have. Um, you know, it's easy for a CEO to say, I would have got this done for Q3, but, um, you know, your your recruiters didn't get me good people or your finance team didn't give me the numbers or procurement wouldn't let me buy that or, you know, whatever it is. And I think bureaucracy just slows everything down and kills companies. Um, and it doesn't take much to feel bureaucratic. It can be something as simple as, um, you know, if you have to buy a, I've, I heard a founder who sold his business to a conglomerate and he said, I was outraged because I just wanted to buy an Aeron share and it took me two months to get an approval, right? So we have really structured our business so that there's nowhere to point fingers and every CEO has full control over their business and we try and stay out of their hair as much as possible. So on the head office level, uh, all we do is look for new M&A opportunities. We consolidate our accounting. So we have reporting across all the businesses and have a sense of what we're doing as a group. Um, and then we approve, uh, you know, bolt-on M&A and big expenditures within the businesses. So an example might be a subsidiary business might want to really invest in customer acquisition this quarter mm -hmm. and it's five million bucks that was unplanned. And so the CEO would come to us and say, hey, are you guys cool with that? Uh, that could be a one-line email, could be a phone call or something. Um, when it comes to strategy, unless we think the CEO is making a fatal error where it's going to be very costly or ruin the business, we don't intervene. And we'll often say, you know, uh, the Bezos line, uh, disagree, but commit. Um, you know, we think this is the wrong choice. Sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes they're wrong. Um, but our goal is for all the CEOs to feel that they have complete autonomy over their business and that it's far better working for us than it is for private equity or venture. Yeah, that's a that's a great the, the line that you said about there's nowhere to point fingers um, because they have full control over the PNL. Um, it sort of gets to this uh, this topic of incentives, and you've talked a lot about incentives in previous interviews. So I don't necessarily want to repeat everything, but I, I remember one time you were talking about one uh, one setup with a CEO where you changed it from one setup to a different one where when he was incentivized, he was incentivized sort of the wrong way the first time. And then the second time you reset it up where he uh, was incentivized based off of free cash flow that was sort of like dividended back to the holding company. Everything sort of changed. Now the incentives y'all have in place, are they pretty much, they're bespoke to each CEO, I think I remember you saying, but do they sort of center around how much, you know, net profit or, or free cash flow is, is sort of, uh, redirected to the holding company or is it all over the map? Like how, how do you guys think about incentives from where you said? Well, it's really difficult because, you know, we incentivize generally around net profit after tax uh, or free cash flow. Um, but 
at the end of the day, there's so many different types of businesses we buy. So for example, right. if we buy a business that is a cigar butt, which we occasionally buy, where we look at the business and we go, oh man, you know, we got this business for a great deal, um, but it has some hair on it and it's in decline and we're going to have to turn it around. Um, we're, our goal is to make sure that we pay ourselves back for the investment as quickly as possible. So that CEO, I really want incentivized around, you know, return on invested capital or net profit or something. That said, if we buy a really, truly exceptional business, um, I want somebody incentivized for earnings for the long term, for five-year yeah. earnings, not for one-year earnings. And so this is a challenge we've gotten into where we always want our CEOs to feel the the wins. So if they have a great quarter and they deliver a ton of free cash flow and, you know, it's, you know, grows a lot and stuff, they're winning in the short term. But at the same time, I want a CEO to feel comfortable um, foregoing profits for, you know, a year because they think they can double the next year or something. And so it's a bit of a balancing act. And like I said, we kind of custom tailor it to each CEO. Uh, we have been shocked though, by various behaviors um, that, you know, all the unintended consequences. Something is, is, you know, one I like to tell is, um, you know, in one of our businesses, we had an incentive structure where um, it was based on uh, all their incentive comp, their bonus paid out 100% when they hit 100% of target on the budget. And um, so, you know, the behavior we would see is that, uh, you know, business has been growing at 30% year over year for, five years and every single year uh, during budget time, they would say, oh, you know, guys, I know that we've had this great run of 30% growth, but this year is going to be different. There's so many tailwind or headwinds and we're going to only grow at 5%. And so that should be the target. And we're just going like, guys, like, what are you talking about? This, this is crazy. And so what was happening was because their bonus got paid out 100% of budget, they were incentivized to be as conservative as humanly possible to make sure they hit it. And so we've really, um, and that took us years to actually recognize. We were going, man, these guys are just so negative. And it, was, it wasn't that they were negative, it was that we were incentivizing negativity. Um, and so often what we've changed to is uh, a hurdle rate based on historical growth that we will adjust accordingly if they have a really challenging year or headwinds or something like that. Um, but you know, we never want to be in a position where we're fighting against our management team to set projections. In your career, you've gone from MetaLab to you know running multiple companies to sort of stepping back from day-to-day operations and starting to buy companies and, and put CEOs in place. I I would imagine that the KPIs that you looked at while you're running the businesses might be a little bit different from what you look at and sort of keep your keep your ear or keep tabs on now. Maybe talk about you know what KPIs you look at now and and if they're different from when you first started out. Well, they're honestly pretty similar. When I first started my career, it was very simplistic. I looked at the bank balance on the first of the month, and then I looked on, on the 30th of the month, and if the balance was bigger, I knew I was doing well. Um, obviously, I got more sophisticated. I started learning P&Ls and balance sheets and stopped balance, bank balance counting and learned accrual and you know all these different things. Um, but at the end of the day, I still look at the business uh, on a global P&L. And I'm really looking at how we're tracking, um, you know, how margins are tracking, whether we're growing, um, you know, uh, whether our head office costs are creeping. Um, but the key things I look at are, you know, revenue, uh, free cash flow, net profit after tax, 
um, return on invested capital, basically like how much have we deployed and what's our yield on that. Um, and uh, within the individual businesses, you know, if it's a SaaS business, we're obviously looking at SaaS metrics and we look at the business very differently than if it's a services business. So it really is kind of custom tailored to each uh, company, but on a holdco level, um, you know, very similar to all the other holding companies, we're really looking at uh, earnings and return on invested capital. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, of Mark Leonard's Constellation, but I, I know you've said that you all are, are definitely different than Constellation because you sort of keep the companies intact and you don't synergize after after closing. You know, each company is its own sort of separate culture and organization, but but they do definitely have a focus on return on invested capital as well. I think- um, I mean, it's very logical for what they do, right? Because every business they have, they may be in different verticals, like they might have car rental software and golf course management software, but at the end of the day, the business model is exactly the same. They're SaaS recurring revenue businesses with enterprise customers. And so they can do things that are very logical, like share a database of all of their customers and kind of cross sell, share best practices. For us, you know, if I had my CEO of one of my SaaS businesses, you know, talk to the CEO of one of our agencies, there's no big learnings to share. And we certainly will encourage people to connect. And we have a we have an email group for all the CEOs and they all kind of know each other. But we don't ever force any kind of like this is our operating manual for these businesses, because at the end of the day, every CEO is different. They have a different way of managing as long as they're employees are happy and their customers are happy and we're getting an okay return uh we're good so we just kind of leave people to it yeah yeah that's 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 awesome that's awesome i want to move on to just kind of some general questions before we wrap up you know you are super active in just the internet uh, business space, the e-commerce and Shopify ecosystem. Are there other spaces that you're interested in, uh, either from Tiny's perspective or maybe building some other type of holding company? I'd just be curious. Well, I mean, the funny way I like to put it is I like to buy businesses like New Zealand. Um, so located in the middle of nowhere, no one's paying attention. So not a competitive space. Um Food and energy independent, so not reliant on Facebook, Google, algorithms, that kind of stuff, and away from nuclear war. They can withstand the test of time. They don't need to rely on capital markets and stuff. And I think there's all sorts of businesses that fall within that. That's kind of filter number one. Filter number two is, can I understand the business? Um, Filter number three is, you know, it goes back to all the Buffett stuff. Like, could anyone, almost any smart person or reasonably smart person run this and have a good chance of doing okay? Will the business naturally grow itself or is this something you have to have a knife fight every day to grow? Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of stuff that falls into that and there's a lot of areas of interest. Um, Some of the kind of themes we have are, you know, SaaS, um, you know, finding kind of unique SaaS products uh, or businesses that have SaaS-like elements. Uh, We love marketplaces. Uh, we love newsletters. We've looked at quite a few newsletters. Uh, we own Girl Boss has a very large newsletter component, but we've been looking at some newsletter businesses we think are quite interesting. Um, podcasting is a big theme for us. Um, and then Shopify and e-commerce. And then we have kind of a bunch of kind of um, early irons in the fire where we're learning different businesses and trying to figure them out. Um, but any given time, you know, we're, we're quite focused on the sort of businesses that we've operated before in the past or that we think, you know, are very easy to operate. Certainly. I, uh, I saw that the hustle sold, uh, today. So any, any inside 
I mean, I know I know you've probably spoken with uh, Sampar numerous times, but uh, I'm a huge fan of his. So I imagine that's a pretty exciting thing for them over there. But oh, yeah. uh, they, they have I mean, a I'm, heck of a newsletter. I'm a huge fan of The Hustle and a big fan of Sam's. And I, I think the world of him and so excited to see their their deal. And, you know, that's I think it's a really interesting um, business. You think about like the 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 job to be done of the newspaper is, you know, what do I skim every day to know what's going on? Um, and for some people, that's the Wall Street Journal if you're in business or investing, or maybe it's the New York Times if you're passionate about public issues or politics or whatever it is. Um, and for me, it was interesting, the hustle and Axios pro rata became my daily skim. And, you know, they're just, they're incredible businesses. And when you look at it, um, there's not that many businesses that only require five people to operate. Yeah, they have a sales team. Yeah, they have more people than that. But at the end of the day, they could stop their aggressive growth path and they could probably run with five people. And those are the kind of businesses I want to own where um, at the end of the day, you don't have to have this huge complex uh, sprawling operation that you can scale non-linearly. Uh, and that's something I think was really interesting about newsletters in general. They're relatively low cost and simple to operate. And I do think they can have newspaper-like economics. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. That the media space has sort of been evolving over the last you know few decades, but the the returns to the new forms of media sort of mimic uh, potentially even even better than the the old forms of you know the old newspapers, right? So but, I do want to come back to, to podcasting, but I know you have a project. I, have a, I, I just have a comment. I have a comment about that though. The the problem going back to sandcastle moats, right? So. Um, I remember when I started, when I replaced reading the Wall Street Journal with reading the Hustle and Axios Pro Rata, that was about two, three years ago. And it was very unique. Um, it was the only, they were the only two newsletters that I got in my inbox. And you know, if you think about the analog, which is uh, newspaper businesses, what would happen is you'd have a dominant newspaper in your city and that uh, publisher would blow their brains out. They'd have massive capital costs. They'd get a huge printing press and trucks and distribution. And then at the end of the day, it just wasn't worth competing with them. Everyone subscribed and paid them. And, you know, that was where all the classified ads went and stuff. Um, what's interesting about newsletters is they are still highly disruptible. And what I've observed for myself is that um, I've started subscribing to more and more newsletters. And then on, suddenly every day I have 20 newsletters in my inbox. And so the hustle can get um, drowned out easily. I think they have a very, very strong brand and a very passionate following and it's a great business. But going back to my earlier point about the moats, it is still hard when you have these unlimited, um, you know, anyone can start a great newsletter tomorrow and compete with you. And I think that's the hard part about the internet. It's the wonderful thing about the internet and the hard part about it. Yeah, certainly. It um, the I guess the barriers to entry, unless you're a network business, but at least to the newsletter business, the barriers to entry are effectively zero. But the scalability is is infinite. To your point. Totally. So I wanted to, to to hit on the newsletter piece while we were sort of on the topic. Capital Daily. Talk about that. Uh, the Maybe, I mean, if you're willing to share like the high level sort of economics of that, I was actually talking with my father-in-law the other day about the demise of newspapers and, and would this idea specifically, Capital Daily, like would this work in my hometown? Why or why not? And we kind of got into like a little mini debate. And so anyways, I'd just love to, you know, hear your perspective on it and if this is like replicable in other cities potentially. So 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a news junkie. Uh, I typically read, uh, you know, two or three papers a day. And what, what would happen is I'd, I'd sit in my cafe that I'd go to when it wasn't COVID, and uh, I would read the New York Times, and then I would pick up the Times Colonist, which is my local paper, and I would just be shocked by um, the quality of the journalism. And, you know, that's not to throw shade on the local journalists. It's just that there really weren't any of them. What, what had happened is over the prior 10 years, advertising revenues had dropped and classified revenues had dropped and uh, they got bought by a big, huge chain. And um, they really let go of almost all the journalists. So they couldn't really cover any substantial issues. And they just had wire service news on it. And so essentially you were just reading, you know, news off of AP and Canadian press. Um, and so I was pretty bummed about that. And uh, a couple of years ago, I decided to approach the company that owned it and say, hey, can I buy it? And they gave me this crazy price tag um, that made no sense because at the end of the day, you have uh, all these complexities to the business. You've got a big union, you have printing presses, you have trucks, all the stuff I described before. And so when I thought about the jobs to be done, I said, well, how hard could it be to just round up a front page? what's happening in my city and let's, you know, summarize the top five stories. And we'll start just by aggregating stories from Twitter and other news sources. Uh, and then over time we can start adding more. And so I found, um, found a friend of mine who stay at home mom who wanted some extra work and was a good writer. And we started a new, uh, MailChimp and had one of my designers design like a logo and we started the newsletter and, uh, it was just a complete hit. It turns out that, Everyone in Victoria was craving local news that uh, was more personalized and really covered local. Um, and as I started looking around the world, I saw that there was a few other people doing this that were actually making reasonable money. And so, um, you know, within about a year or about a year and a half, I guess, we got to about 40,000 subscribers. Um, and we're in a city of maybe 250, 300,000 people. So that's pretty, uh, pretty big. And we're actually bigger than the daily paper because um, it had been shrinking. Um, and now it's a process of, um, you know, hiring reporters to do original reporting um, and start monetizing it. And the jury's still out on monetization. I think we can definitely break even and build a good, um, you know, a good kind of public service. There's a question mark around whether it can be highly profitable um, and whether we can grow it. But Certainly, this is a blue ocean opportunity where the entire world has decided that news is dead and the newspaper is dead and this is a great way to lose money. Um, and uh, I think that's kind of exciting. And I think that finally, there are tools available that make this incredibly cost effective, where if you think about why newspapers didn't work, they just had this very bloated P&L uh, of cost. And if you take offices out of it, and you really think of it as a MailChimp account, uh, you know, a Webflow account, and two or three uh, journalists. It's it's not not a crazy uh, expedition. It's not not that expensive to spin up. And I could imagine there could be a, a small network effect where you get big enough and people just kind of start sending you leads instead of you having to sort of go out and, and dig through the trenches to to find, you know, what is news today in Victoria? I don't know if you guys have totally. maybe maybe hit that, but what are you thinking about uh, like monetizing it? Just just ads or subscription, both? What, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, there's a variety of ways to do it. The hard part with ads that's been really fascinating is we would find these advertisers who would be perfectly happy to spend $10,000 on a front page newspaper ad. But when you go to them and you say, uh, hey, do you want a 
um, a front page, you know, email ad to a larger audience and you can track it and you can use a discount code to see, um, you know, who converted and stuff. They're much more skeptical. You know, there's something with these older advertisers um, who just don't get it. And so, you know, finding the right advertising model is a little challenging because you have to educate people. Um, but it's starting to work and we've started getting all sorts of people who are realizing that, hey, when I put an ad up, I can sell blinds and heat pumps and plumbing services and therapy and all sorts of other stuff. Um, I think, you know, the Guardian model is really interesting. Um, there's two elements to it. One would be membership where you say, look, you know, this is a free service. Um, but if you're passionate about your city and you want to support some of our coverage, uh, we would love it if you donate. And if you donate, we're going to give you, you know, maybe exclusive access to events we put on. Maybe you'll get, you know, news early or something like that. Some perks, but the idea of being able to have them vote what kind of topics they want to cover and what they care about, I think is really interesting. And then on the philanthropic side as well, there's all these charity groups in our city that are really passionate about different issues, you know, homelessness or urban development. And we don't want to ever do sponsored stories, but I do like the idea of saying, look, why don't you fund a reporter to write about homelessness? You're not going to choose them. You're not going to have editorial, but we're going to cover homelessness and we're going to let the community know that your philanthropic organization sponsored that. And I think that's really interesting. Um, and, you know, there's other ways to monetize that, you know, there's endless different permutations of this that we could experiment with. Um, but those are kind of our leading uh, ideas. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Cheers for you guys, you know, being able to create something that is uh, highly uh, consumable, but also local. So that's awesome. I want to hit just podcasting briefly and then maybe maybe wrap up with a few few last, uh, you know, short short form questions. So, you know, just head, going back to the previous question um, and your answer, uh, podcasting being a space that you were also interested in. Um, obviously, I'm interested in it too, which is why I, I started my own. But I'd be curious, what what are you interested in the industry for? You know, what inning are we in in the industry? And, and where do you th- see things heading uh, for podcasting and that, you know, the ecosystem? Well, I think podcasting is kind of like where um, the web was in 1999. Everybody thinks that it's all clicks and eyeballs and ads. And uh, I think it's about membership and subscription. Um, and uh, you know, if you think about it, like people would create these kind of web apps and they would just have ads all over them. And then someone realized in 2002 or 2003 that, Hey, if I just charge people five bucks a month for this, I've got a really great, secure, predictable business. Um, and I saw this, a friend of mine was starting a podcast and, um, he was, uh, using Patreon and he said, I, I want to eschew ads. I don't want to have ads. Um, so if you like what I'm talking about, then, Uh, support me on Patreon. And I was just blown away when I looked at his numbers. I was like, oh my God, this is the greatest SaaS business of all time, except you don't have to have developers. You just need, you know, him and a microphone and, you know, an editor to, uh, to edit it. And uh, that got me really excited. And so much so that I ended up founding a company called Supercast, uh, which basically is technology to enable podcasters to do this. Um, and you know, a lot of people think of, um, uh, the membership stuff is all or nothing. Um, they say, you know, I've got my ads, I make a hundred K a year, you know, I don't need more. We think of this as a supplemental thing. Uh, it can be 
uh, more like Howard Stern, where you pay a serious membership, or it can just be something where you take your thousand true fans and you say, I'm going to give you a little extra. I'm going to give you one extra episode a month or an ask me anything session or something of interest. And we've been blown away by just how much money some of these people can make. There's podcasters on Supercast making 200,000 plus a month uh, with relatively small audiences that are just very passionate about what they talk about. Um, so I think it's 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 burgeoning. And I, I kind of feel like um, podcasters are like farmers and they're all harvesting corn on their land and they're making a small amount of money. And I'm screaming at them going like, there's oil, there's oil under your farm. Like you could make so much more money, but uh, you know they haven't quite caught on yet. It's still uh, in the early innings right now. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. What I'm really curious. Um, I've had the opportunity to speak with a couple other podcasters from offline and they focus on like niche spaces uh, and they do very well from an advertising perspective because their audience is very focused on what they're talking about. So, but I'd be curious, like a couple of the, the spaces that, you know, for example, the person that's making you know 200k a month. What you know? What kind of spaces are you talking about? Well, it's got to be something that someone's willing to pay money to learn, right? So, uh, health, fitness, um, personal productivity, uh, business, uh, investing. They need to need to be able to argue that they're going to get something incredibly valuable from it. Um, so, if it's just a you know public affairs show talking about politics. And, you know, you're going to get a little more insight or a longer interview. It's not that interesting. But if you feel that by listening to the extra content, your business could grow more, you're going to gain an amazing insight, maybe you'll discover a new investment, or you might save your own life because you're learning about your own health. That's where we see people willing to to pay the money. Um, or if they're an expert within an industry, right? Where if someone went out and did a course on value investing, let's say Pabri did a course on value investing, and the first three episodes are free. And then after that, you pay money to have the exclusive feed. I think he could probably make like a lot of money. Um, so it, it's just, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it as long as you're delivering value. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Well, uh, I want to be respectful of our time together. So I do want to wrap up. Uh, before we get to uh, the last uh, questions, though, I've heard you mention multiple times that all you kind of need to, to start a holding company. And I think this is one reason why I was always uh, attracted to people like the Brent B. Shores, uh, like yourself, who are actually out there building holding companies. Um, it's something that I would aspire to do. But, you know, you've always said that all you need to do is is sort of start a company or buy a small company that has you know extra free cash flow that you can deploy. If you were starting over today and you couldn't build websites, you know, wh where would you be looking today if, if Andrew Wilkinson was 18 years old today? Well, I think I would be looking for something where I have the skills to perform whatever task it is. And I don't think that, you know, the first business you do doesn't have to be, you know, the next Tesla. It, it doesn't, I think that so many young people I talk to are um, suffocated by opportunity where they've gone to a good school and they want to do something big in the world and so they and they've also learned to kind of think like venture capitalists and so they go well that's not a billion dollar opportunity or that's not venture scale mm -hmm. and i always think you want to start your first business as a launch pad for yourself where your goal ultimately should be to make a hundred grand a year and that's fine and it could never grow past that but you want to build a business that'll pay your bills and give you the kind of uh, intellectual freedom to then go and start more businesses um you know, I got lucky. My launchpad business 
uh, Metalab turned out to continue to grow and it was in a great industry. Um, but even if it hadn't, it still would have been a great thing that would have propelled me to do all this other stuff. Certainly. I've got three quick final questions for you and then, uh, and then we'll call it a day. Are there, are there any personal habits or practices that you're dedicated to that, you you know, you think help keep you physically fit, mentally fit, or that you just enjoy doing and sort of represent a a nice break time for you to, to, to clear the, the, the mind. Mentally fit. One thing I've done over the last six months is I blocked uh, email on my phone. So I don't have news, social media, or email on my phone. Um, and then I also on my, even on my laptops, I don't get email after four. So I have a piece of software I built that blocks email after 4 PM, unless it has like a emergency in the subject headline or whatever. So that's been really great. I used to kind of work 24 seven before bed and stuff. And now, um, four o'clock's my cutoff. I don't think about any business stuff unless there's emergency. Um, and then physically, um, aside from just general exercise, I got a sauna about, uh, two years ago and I am such an advocate of it. I, I doesn't matter how stressed out I am 20 minutes in the sauna and I emerge like a Phoenix as a new person with less stress. Um, so I absolutely love doing that. Um, and then the other thing I do, which is shockingly effective is I have, um, I turn all the, all the screens on all my devices to red. You can use accessibility on iOS to switch it to a red tint and so you don't get bright light exposure in the evening. I dim all the lights in my house and I have all my lights or all my uh, devices on red. And I find I just sleep like a baby and I don't, I don't get all wired. I think we're all kind of shining flashlights in our faces and then wondering why we can't sleep. Um, so those, those are a few things I've done that have been really impactful for me. Nice, nice. I need to write the spa, spa idea down for sure. What personal values or beliefs are most important to you and how do they inform you know, how you operate on a day-to-day? Uh, well, I mean, the one that we always go back to is anti-goals. So I think people are very good at uh, imagining you know, what, uh, what makes them miserable, but they're not very good at thinking about what will make them happy. They're bad at predicting that. We often think, I'll be happy when I have a bigger house, but you know, you're not. Um, but you do know that you hate uh, long drives or you hate uh, doing accounting. And so uh, one of the practices that Chris and I have gotten into is uh, every few months, you know, as we start to feel stressed, basically making a list of all the things we've been doing that we hate and then building systems to avoid them, either just saying no uh, or hiring people to do those things. Uh, and that's been really wonderful for us. Uh, I think we kind of blew our brains out doing too much for a long time. So it's nice to be able to say that's enough and I'm going to avoid those things. And it seems like that's how you built tiny as well to sort of take care of the anti goals of, of potential sellers too, uh, of, you know, building the buyer that uh, you wish you would have had. There's always, doesn't matter what task it is you don't enjoy. There's always someone out there who enjoys it almost every single task. And so isn't it a nicer world when we all go and find people that want to do the thing that, uh, you know, that we don't want to do, uh, and then pay them fairly for it where they're happy and you're happy. I just think there's no better, uh, no better thing than when those stars align. Certainly, certainly. All right. Well, to wrap up our time, last question, what business hasn't been started, but needs to be, I honestly think it's this local news stuff. I think that, um, this is one of those things where we have a small flag down in it. It's not a core focus for us, but I think if I started this as my first business, I would be rapidly expanding across North America and trying to eat as much pie as possible. 
Um, and I think it's a big opportunity. I don't know if it's a billion dollar business, but I think it could be a very influential, very important business for uh, society. And uh, I think you'd probably make a reasonable amount of money doing it. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time today. This has been a blast and uh, best of luck to you. Congrats on all your success thus far. And I'm really looking forward to, uh, to continue to, to follow everything that you all are doing. So thanks again for taking the time. That was great. Thanks for the weekly uh, inspiration. I really, really do enjoy your newsletter. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.